Hey everybody, I'm Warren Smith coming to you this week from Colorado Springs. And I'm Natasha Smith, also coming to you this week from Holland, Michigan. Uh, we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Each week, Ministry Watch brings you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy. News that we examine from a Christian worldview perspective, and our goal is to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. On today's program, a clever scam that took in hundreds of thousands of dollars from dozens of ministries. We also have updates on stories related to Hobby Lobby and the Anglican Church of North America. Plus, a federal court deals religious liberty a blow but the fight's not over. We begin today with a development in the ongoing saga of controversial pastor Mark Driscoll. Yeah, uh, some of our listeners, Natasha, may remember that in 2014, Mark Driscoll stepped down from leadership of the Seattle megachurch Mars Hill Church, which he founded in 1996. Several former Mars Hill pastors filed charges against him, saying that he had engaged in a pattern of abusive and intimidating behavior, which included domineering leadership, harsh language, and angry outbursts. Now, elders of Seattle's Mars Hill Church, who served with former Mark Driscoll, has now, this week, called for him to resign from his new position, leading a church in Arizona, alleging in a statement that Driscoll has continued in a pattern of sinful actions towards staff members and parishioners, and he has failed to seek either reconciliation or repentance. Now, when I understand that this is a new development in the Driscoll story, but Driscoll resigned from Mars Hill in 2014, seven years ago, and the church itself, Mars Hill Church, doesn't even exist anymore. So why the continued fascination? Well, it's a great question, uh, but I think there are some good reasons and some good answers to that question. For for one thing, uh, after leaving Mars Hill Church, Driscoll uh, almost immediately founded this new church that we just mentioned a minute ago. It's called Trinity Church, and it's in Scottsdale, Arizona, which is an affluent suburb of Phoenix. And the 39 elders listed on a statement that they released to Christianity Today said that they were troubled because Mark Driscoll continues to be unrepentant, despite the fact that these sins have been previously investigated, verified, brought to his attention by former elders prior to his abrupt resignation at Mars Hill all those years ago. Also, Christianity Today has released a new podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. That has proven to be enormously popular. Well, that's right, and I can see why. I've listened to it myself, and it is compelling audio. In some ways, what happened at Mars Hill is a peek into what has been happening to evangelicalism generally in the past 30 years, and I think that that's one of the reasons why the fascination with Mark Driscoll continues. The rise of celebrity pastors and the problems that come along with that phenomenon, problems that include the narcissism of the pastor himself, and also the tendency of other younger church leaders to want to imitate him. In fact, that whole process has become sort of a metaphor for our time, especially within the evangelical church. And at the risk of self-promotion myself, uh, I should say that I've been covering this story since well before 2014, both here at Ministry Watch and when I was at World Magazine 
Magazine, and you can read our ongoing coverage of um, Mark Driscoll by going to ministrywatch.com and typing his name or Mars Hill Church into the search engine. You'll find stories that go all the way back to 2013, and we've also got a whole chapter devoted to Mark Driscoll in my new book, Faith-Based Fraud. Our next story highlights our ongoing coverage of false prophets in the church. We've reported in the past how some charismatic preachers have been able to attract followers by making outlandish predictions that end up not coming true. Yeah, that's right. Often these predictions have nothing to do with Scripture. Some of them traffic on conspiracy theories about the end times uh, that, you know, once again, you don't find in the Bible. But people who are not grounded in Scripture themselves don't know that. And they take what these preachers say as the gospel truth, even if they're, in some cases, made up or coming from extra-biblical sources. And now there's a new study that's been looking into this phenomenon. Yeah, a couple of university researchers, James Beverly and Gordon Melton, have looked into more than 150 prophets that prophesied, for example, Donald Trump's victory last November. Only a handful of them have admitted that they were wrong and apologized. We reported on a few who apologized, and we also reported on a statement signed by many charismatic leaders disavowing these false prophets. Yeah, we we have uh, done that, and and I think that those are steps in the right direction towards reform. But researchers Beverly and Melton discovered that these 150 so-called prophets have millions of followers. The vast majority of them have made no semblance of repentance or apology. Uh, For example, Sid Roth's streaming show called It's Supernatural has 1.3 million subscribers. And one of his guests, who is a guy that's often on the show spouting off some of these kind of crazy ideas, is a guy named Hank Kuhneman. He's the pastor of Lord of host church in Omaha, Nebraska, and we've seen their prophecies fail over and over and over again, or sometimes they make prophecies that are so vague that it is possible for him to reinterpret his own words to mean something different later so that he doesn't have to admit that his prophecies failed. Uh, Others kind of in this camp include Lance Walno, Jim Baker, of course, from the old PTL scandal days, and Rick Joyner. Uh, They're among the preachers that are mentioned in this new study. Warren, we need to take a break. When we return, news about Hobby Lobby and the courts give religious liberty another setback. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com.
Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, let's continue with the results of a new study saying that trust in major philanthropists and foundations has declined dramatically in the last year. Yeah, trust is declining for all institutions in civil society these days, including the government and journalism, I should add. Um, But they're declining in uh, nonprofits and philanthropic organizations pretty significantly as well. We've reported on this phenomenon in the past, and it's part of kind of a general erosion uh, among Americans uh, in their confidence in institutions of all kinds. But this new survey seems to be showing something more. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, According to a new survey by a group called the Independent Sector, only 4% of respondents said that they currently trust major philanthropists or foundations. That's down from about 15% the year before. Any reason for that sharp decline? Well, the survey didn't ask for reasons, but one of the problems with large foundations and big-name philanthropists is a growing perception that they exist as tax breaks for the rich. We've reported, for example, on the efforts of Senator Charles Grassley to require foundations to give away more money each year. Currently, the law requires foundations to give away 5% of their assets, but if uh, you give a, if you making if you're making more than 5% uh, a year on those assets you can give away 5% and you can still grow the at the uh, foundation could still grow so we think senator charles grassley's uh, uh, new bill it's in congress right now is a good idea and it might cause uh, this sharp decline in confidence in foundations to reverse itself now you also have some religious liberty news this week Yeah, I do. Uh, Not great news, though. Uh, A U.S. appeals court has ruled against a web designer who didn't want to create wedding websites for same-sex couples, and he sued to challenge Colorado's anti-discrimination law. Another twist in a series of court rulings nationwide about whether businesses can deny services to LGBTQ people uh, and whether that amounts to bias or freedom of speech. A three-judge panel in the 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in Denver on Monday denied this uh, designer, her name is Lori Smith, and her attempt to overturn a lower court ruling, throwing out her legal challenge. Alliance Defending Freedom, a Christian religious liberty law firm based in Phoenix, Arizona, represents Smith. They argued that the law forced her to violate her Christian beliefs, but in a two-to-one ruling, the panel said that Colorado had a compelling interest to protect the dignity interests of members of marginalized groups through this particular law. Well, Warren, this case is quite familiar. Isn't it similar to the one that involved the Colorado baker, Jack Phillips? It is. Uh, the anti-discrimination law is, in fact, the same one uh, that was uh, at issue in the case of Colorado Baker Jack Phillips. And that one, you may recall, Natasha, went all the way to the Supreme Court in 2018, and Jack Phillips won. The high court in that case decided that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission had acted with anti-religious bias against Jack Phillips after he refused to bake a cake for a wedding between two men. Once again, he was defended by Alliance Defending Freedom, and um, John Bursch is the ADF senior counsel. And in this newer case, uh, the, the one in, involving the web designer, he said this, the government should never force creative professionals to promote a message or a cause with which they disagree. This is quintessential free speech and artistic freedom. 
Well, Warren, our next story is an update to our ongoing coverage of the Museum of the Bible. Yeah, a federal judge uh, this week ordered Hobby Lobby, uh, the arts and crafts chain whose president is Museum of the Bible founder Steve Green, to forfeit an ancient tablet uh, bearing a rare fragment of a document called the Epic of Gilgamesh. Uh, The item was part of the exhibitions at the Museum of the Bible when it opened in November of 2017, and it has remained on display uh, until 2019 when it was confiscated by federal agents. We've covered some of Hobby Lobby's issues with artifacts in the past. Yeah, that's right. In 2017, Hobby Lobby agreed to return nearly 4,000 artifacts to Iraq after they were found to have been looted from Iraqi archaeological sites. As part of the settlement with the Justice Department, uh, the company also was required to pay about $3 million to the U.S. government. Then two years later, the Museum of the Bible acknowledged buying more than a dozen ancient Bible fragments that were later suspected of being stolen. And finally, last year in 2020, the Museum of the Bible announced that it had determined more than 11,000 clay and papyri items in its collection had dubious provenance. In other words, they didn't know where it came from. Uh, It is working to clarify the questions of provenance and to determine the item's final destinations. Now, you've said on this podcast in the past that you think that while these problems are clearly mistakes, they are not actually fraudulent. Yeah, I, that's right. And, uh, you know, I do think it's important for us to continue to cover um, this Hobby Lobby Museum of the Bible uh, controversy because it's a big story. It's an important story. And I think it does, um, you know, kind of go to the credibility of evangelicals generally. Um, that's one of the reasons why I've been following this story pretty closely for years. Uh, but I will say this in 2020, uh, Steve Green issued a statement, and I'm going to read a part of it right here, Natasha. In 2009, When I began acquiring biblical manuscripts and artifacts for what would ultimately form the collection at Museum of the Bible, I knew little about the world of collecting. If I learn of other items in the collection for which another person or entity has a better claim, I will continue to do the right thing with those items. So that's the end of Steve Grease's statement. And I will say that um, having covered this story for a long time and seen really uh, pretty remarkable attempts by the Green family to make things right whenever things were discovered not to be right, that I see no reason not to take Steve Green and his word on this issue. This latest episode, in fact, appears to have originated when the auction house that sold Green these artifacts actually might have been defrauded themselves and then in turn passed on um, that um, mistaken provenance to the Green family. And in fact, I should also add to this uh, story one little footnote. The Museum of the Bible is currently suing Sotheby's over that very incident. Now, let's take a look at one more story before the break, and that's a story of COVID vaccine hesitation. I understand why that's a story in general, but what does it have to do with Christian ministries? Well, because vaccine hesitation has been highest among religious groups and outreaches to churches and to Christian audiences, sometimes enrolling these groups and the leaders of these groups in their outreach to members has been working. A new survey finds that vaccine hesitancy has fallen among Americans overall and in almost all of the religious subgroups uh, that make up uh, Americans uh, over the last three months. 
response with many who once balked saying that they now embrace inoculation against COVID-19 at the urging of their faith leaders. Uh, Researchers noted that the number of vaccine-hesitant Americans has shrunk significantly overall from about 28% of Americans in March to just 15% of Americans in June when a similar survey was conducted. Warren, we have to take another quick break, but when we return, our weekly lightning round of ministry news. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Warren, we like to use this last little segment as a sort of lightning rounds of shorter news briefs. What do you have first? Well, the second postal rate hike of this year is on track to take effect at the end of the next month, uh, following approval this week by the Postal Regulatory Commission. Nonprofit marketing mail would experience an increase of anywhere from 5.7 to nearly 15%, depending upon the category and the class, and that could punch a hole in the budget of a lot of Christian ministries that depend upon direct mail. That's why the Alliance for Nonprofit Mailers has actually filed a lawsuit in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia challenging this rate hike. What else do you have? Well, a fascinating story about the number of Americans who give to religious causes. We've reported here Recently, giving among Americans has continued to rise in recent years, even through the pandemic. Yeah, that's right. Uh, That's why it's so interesting that while giving has been going up, the number of American households who donate to religious causes has actually dropped fairly dramatically over the last two decades, 20 years, about 17%. And that drop-off in giving to faith-based groups occurred at a faster rate than this a similar drop-off among secular organizations. So that means that fewer people are giving more. Yeah, that's uh, more or less accurate. Uh, The share of Americans donated to charity uh, fell from about two-thirds of all Americans donating to charity in 2000 to about 49%, less than one-half in 2018. Uh, That's the last year we have data available, according to this new study, which came from Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. Just 49.6% of U.S. households made a charity contribution in uh, 2018. And in 2000, as I said, it was two-thirds. That number was 66%. Now, what's also disturbing, Natasha, about these numbers, aside from the drop-off generally, is that the data shows that just one-third of the decrease can be attributed to personal economic shifts. In other words, I'm giving less because I have less. Um, The real factors in this decline appear to be 
things like trust and empathy and compassion for others that are coming into play. So when those are falling, that really signals kind of a long-term shift in what's happening culturally in this country. And perhaps the most disturbing aspect of the data is this. About 46% of U.S. households donated to specifically religious causes between 2000 and 2004, but that number had declined to only 29% in 2018. In other words, religious giving is where most of that decline has taken place. And while we're on the subject of charity and philanthropy, you have news of legislative updates. Yeah, legislation and changes in federal tax law uh, could impact the charitable sector. Um, They in some cases, have a real chance of passing, uh, despite the fact that Congress is locked in a near 50-50 tie when it comes to party control. The first bill is what has been called the Universal Charitable Deduction. It's a $300 Universal Charitable Deduction enacted during the pandemic uh, that is supposed to expire at the end of the year. But uh, Senator uh, James Lankford, a Republican from Oklahoma, and Chris Coons, a Democrat from Delaware, have championed championed a a new bill that will extend that $300 universal deduction. There's also um, another bill called the Legacy IRA Act, which would expand the IRA charitable rollover, uh, which was created in 2016. And it would expand it by specifically saying that the minimum age would be lowered from 70 and a half to 65 for people who wish to make tax-free IRA contributions of up to $400,000. Now, believe it or not, I know this is kind of in the weeds, Natasha, but that's a pretty big deal. It allows um, people to make um, these charitable contributions uh, earlier and um, make the larger contributions without having any negative tax consequences. Now, there's one other bill that I want to mention briefly because I've already mentioned it earlier in the program, and that is Senator Charles Grassley's uh, efforts to accelerate um, giving out of foundations. He's calling it Accelerating Charitable Effects, or the ACE Act, and um, it will try to get uh, donor-advised fund assets and endowment assets to go to the charities more quickly. I've got to say that even though I am personally in favor of that bill, it doesn't stand much of a chance of passing this year. Warren, that's quite a lot of technical jargon. So can you <laughs> can you bottom line it for us? Are these pieces of legislation good ideas or bad ideas? Well, as a nonprofit ourselves, we cannot tell people, including legislators, to vote for or against any particular piece of le- legislation. But, uh, you know, as I mentioned about uh, Senator Grassley's act, let me just say that I think all three of them are good ideas. And if our listeners want to know more so they can make up their own decisions, um, they can look at our in-depth analysis of these laws on the Ministry Watch website. And do you have a good news story about a pastor who discovered orphans in his own backyard? Yeah, this pastor, his name is Eric Porter. He was a pastor for 12 years, and he was taking mission trips, you know, like literally around the world before he discovered that, hey, you know, we've got orphans right here in our own backyard. He said this, I was flying over kids to reach kids. Um, And he was, of course, speaking of his international mission trips. There are kids in our own backyard who need us to speak up and to sign up to help them. So in the winter of 2011, Porter conducted some research and found that about 100 
140 million orphans worldwide, and about 400,000 children here in the United States are either orphaned or in tenuous family situations, uh, often as a part of our foster care system. Uh, That number includes about 100,000 that are waiting to be adopted. They've already sort of cleared all the hurdles, and, and they're just waiting to be adopted. So he founded a group called Backyard Orphans. It's an interdenominational group, and it was launched uh, in 2012 and has placed nearly a thousand children in homes since then. Wow, a thousand kids is quite a lot. Well, it is, and the Porters hope, and they say, they believe that this is just the beginning. Uh, to read Bethany Starin's story, which is a really great story, and I think you'll enjoy it a great deal, go to ministrywatch.com and you'll see it right on the front page. And finally, who's in the ministry spotlight? Well, our ministry spotlight is back. We had took a couple of weeks off for the summer, thanks to Rod Pitzer for uh, putting these together for us. And this week, he has Southern Evangelical Seminary in the ministry spotlight. It's a seminary right in my hometown of Charlotte, North Carolina that specializes in Christian apologetics, and it also hosts the annual National Conference on Christian Apologetics. It was founded in 1992 by that apologetics guru, Dr. Norman Geisler, and it's produced thousands of graduates who are now active in the field of apologetics. You can read more about Southern Evangelical Seminary, again, on the front page of our website under the Ministry Spotlight tab. Any housekeeping items before we go? Yeah, just a couple of quick items. Uh, reminders of things that I've mentioned before. Faith-based fraud is now available in uh, paperback, ebook, and now audiobook as well at audible.com. And I'd also like to remind everyone that uh, we're kind of at the end of uh, July, which is our month end. And if you'd like to make a contribution to kind of help us keep going and keep bringing news to you, you can go to our website, ministrywatch.com, and hit the donate tab up at the top of the page. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Guttard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Steve Raby, Ann Stike, Emily Miller, and Adele Banks. I'm Natasha Smith in Holland, Michigan. And I'm Warren Smith coming to you this week from where Natasha usually is in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.